to Crossview Radio Podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Norville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. We are continuing our series on biblical manhood. This is, as a reminder, a four-part series uh, Dr. Jim Berg did at a men's conference back in 2009. Uh, And the topic of manhood is... Uh, particularly important for this uh, time and this season uh, in uh, in our world, uh, the androgynous values of the world and the blurring of the lines uh, between genders, the confusion that exists uh, between what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, all of this uh, makes it crucial for us to understand what Scripture has to say. So, uh, without any uh, further delay, uh, we'll jump right into it. Well, we want to we look now more closely at that engine of godliness we talked about that is to be a part of the godly dominion. And we've trying to look at this in from some, several different ways that godly dominion means God-fearing, gospel-centered, grace-enabled dominion, we also want to look at it from the standpoint of the kind of character that we ought to have as men. And um, some of you have, have um, been through the extended seminar on essential virtues. Some of you have even read the book. Uh, we're going to get a very brief uh, capsule of this right here um, because I, th- I think it's important for us to continually be reminded about the thing. Peter, especially in this passage in 2 Peter 1, it's no more inspired than the rest of the Bible. But Peter said, after he talked about these these virtues, he said, I will not be negligent to put you in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and are established in the present truth. And he said, yeah, I think it's fitting that after, that as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I shall put you in remembrance. And then he says, yeah, I think it's fitting even after my decease that you're going to have these in remembrance. And he's going to write them down, and that's why we have them. Peter said, you need to be reminded about this over and over and over again. My staff can probably um, uh, give this lecture all by themselves. In fact, if I fall over in a heart attack here, John or, or uh, Stephen, you can come up here and finish it up. Um, and, and Doc, you take care of me <laughs> with a heart attack. Um, but I, because they've heard this a lot, and, and there's no apology for that. I remember when I was, um, when I was just first married, um, Bill Gothard was just starting to get known. And in 1973, the summer of our marriage, my wife and I went to Atlanta and went through the Bill Gothard Basic Seminar. It was, I learned so much helpful stuff. And then two years later, we went again. And two years later, we went again. And I I went through that same seminar, heard the same thing three times and, and brought my red notebook home and studied through it and things like that and learned a lot. And the repetition is how we learn. So even if you've had this before, um, uh, Peter said, I want you to be reminded of these things over and over again. So there's an, a- there's an apostolic admonition for repetition here. And um, by the way, when your kids say to you, Dad, you know, you just always tell me that. Say, I'm not a kid. You don't have to tell me that over and over again. You tell them, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to disciple you the way God disciples his kids. And God tells his kids the same stuff over and over and over again. So um, I am treating you like a kid. I'm treating you like one of God's kids. The way he treats me and the way uh, God treats all his kids. He repeats things much. Well, when we look at 2 Peter 1, I think we have here the most um, complete portrait of Christ's likeness anywhere in the Bible. And I'll, I'll explain that in, in just a minute. 
This is, um, I like to think of 2 Peter 1 as one of those single chapter watering holes in the Bible where thirsty sheep can get a real long drink of one topic. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, is like that. And um, Ephesians 4 on sanctification. And uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8 on sanctification. And um, the, the, Luke 15 on the Good Shepherd. Um, there are a lot of these single chapter watering holes where you, you, there are many other passages of Scripture that deal with the topic, but God seems to be pleased to put a lot of teaching in one chapter. And I think that's what he's done for us in Second Peter 1 here in giving us this portrait of Christ's likeness. And we're going to uh, take this apart. Um, I call these essential virtues because, because they're essential. They're, they are the, the, uh, the, the whole groundwork or the, they're the whole um, portrait of what it means to be like Christ. And we'll take these apart as we go along. I think they divide nicely up into uh, the two great commandments. Godliness is the epitome of loving God with all your heart. And the commentators call this first group the personal virtues. And uh, loving my neighbor, the brotherly kindness and love, they call the social virtues. And so while, when we're adding these things to our faith, as Peter commands, then uh, what is happening is that we are actually fulfilling the first and second great commandment. Um, but we might have some questions when we look at this list initially. We might ask the question, first of all, why this list? <clears throat> it, it, it seems like the apostles don't have their act together. And, and they do, I say that reverently. Um, they don't have their act together because everybody's got his own list and sometimes they overlap and sometimes they have unique things and why can't they get it together and give us the list? Well, I think the reason for the differences in those lists is the same thing we experience um, in our lives. When I go to Bilo here in town with my wife to get groceries, we have a different list than when I go to Home Depot to buy things. Um, the, the context and the purpose is different, and so the list is different. Now, they might overlap because you can buy flashlight batteries and light bulbs at either place, but the lists are the way they are because of the intent and the purpose of that trip. Well, I believe it's the same way in all of these passages of Scripture that have lists. The fruit of the Spirit, the purpose, hermeneutically, the purpose of that passage is to demonstrate the contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the flesh and the works of the flesh. And Paul is going to choose under inspiration um, qualities that, that um, contrast to those works of the flesh. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 and, and onward in the Beatitudes there. And he is displaying the qualities of his kingdom that are in most contrast to the qualities of the Judaism that, that uh, people had known. In uh, James chapter 3, those, uh, that wisdom that is from above, that's pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. The whole context there is the kind of wisdom that is reacting in trials. James is the context of trials, and particularly with our tongue, the kind of speech we have. Well, always the context determines why those elements are in that list. Well, then we have to ask ourselves, why, what is the context of Second Peter 1? And the context is full-grown Christian maturity. It's the kind of maturity, Peter says, that if you have this, you will never fall. You won't be falling. doesn't mean you won't sin, but you will be stable. And he says it's a kind of maturity that will bring you an, an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. God will honor this most because this is most like his son. And there's some other reasons, but, but basically this is a chapter dealing with Christian maturity. 
And that's why Peter says, folks, you've got to get this. I'm going to remind you over and over and over. You've got to get this. Even after I'm dead and gone, you've got to get this. And so I, my, my thought on that is that we've probably got to get this. And we've got to go over it again and again in our own minds. Um, Peter gives us this list. Um, and the next question we might ask is, is there an order to this list? He says, add to your faith virtue into virtue, knowledge into knowledge, self-control into that, endurance and godliness, brotherly kindness and love. Is there an order to that, or can we just exchange those around? I think different than the other lists in the Scripture, this does have an order to it. Not only grammatically, there, there seems to be a building process in there, but logically and spiritually there is a building process as well. Um, for example, you can't have 1 Corinthians 13 love, which is the last thing on the list, which endureth all things, Paul says, unless you have learned some endurance. And that comes earlier. Um, the way I like to think of it is, is this, this developing embryo in a mother's womb. Um, it gives us, I think, an illustration of this. What God is doing here, all of these little parts of this body are growing. And those little fingers are growing, and the toes, and the legs, and the arms, and all of this is growing pretty much at the same rate, except you see this enormous head, all out of proportion to the rest of the growth of the body. If you and I were sitting here this morning, or this afternoon, uh, morning yet, isn't it? Uh, if we were sitting here this morning with heads in this proportion to our bodies that you see in this embryo, we'd all look like a bunch of aliens. Um, But what is happening here is that this head must grow first because it it houses that brain that is going to regulate the development and the growth of the rest of the body. It's got to be there first. It's going to sustain the rest. And then that little heart grows out of proportion because it's got to sustain the growth of the rest of this body. And so there is what, what I call simultaneous growth at the same time, there is sequential growth. They're, simultaneously, they're all growing, but there is a sequence to the growth as well. And I think that's the same way here in these passages. You can't, we, we have to be working on all of these qualities of character. We can't just say, well, love is the last one in the list. I don't have to work on that till I'm retired. Um, because it's commanded to all of us, whether you're 7 years old or 77 years old, you have to be developing love. But you cannot have mature love that, as I said, endures all things until you have some endurance, which comes earlier in the list. That's got to be in place before you can have the rest in a mature fashion. We're trying to teach our grandsons, and many of you are trying to teach your young children to be kind, which being interpreted in three- and four-year-old languages, don't hit your brother with your truck. And you're trying to teach them kind. Well, that's that's a... kind of brotherly kindness. It's not full, mature brotherly kindness. You can't have full-blown brotherly kindness, the kind that deals with all of the problems of the brethren, without some self-control. Because there's some things you want to say to some of the brethren that you can't say to the brethren. And so these other elements have to be in place before you can see the full maturing of of those end qualities. Although, as I said, we've got to be working on all of them. So I call it simultaneous yet yet sequential growth. And, and not only, I, I believe it's true in that passage, but God has illustrated it in, in this way, in the physical world as well, that that, that that is the way he often works. Well, let's take these apart briefly here uh, this morning. Um, when he says, add to your saving faith virtue, and in some other modern translations, they use the word excellence or moral excellence. 
Um, and that excellence does capture the meaning of that, that Greek word very, very well. Uh, pursuing the excellence of Christ's likeness. That means, I believe, cultivating, and that word adding to your faith, we could even translate cultivate. Cultivating a God-mandated purpose to develop and display the excellencies or the character of Jesus Christ. Now I want us to think about that word arete, that Greek word, add to your saving faith, virtue. Now it's a little bit confusing in the King James because it calls that virtue when really all of these are virtues. But, let's, uh, but virtue had a little different meaning back then, and I want us to look at, at, at what it meant to the Greeks who made this word up. When we add to our faith virtue, the word arete, which is a transliteration here of the Greek, as you see it, R-E-T-E, A-R-E-T-E, um, does mean excellence. And uh, probably the one who got this the most right was Aristotle. Now, I'm, you know, Aristotle was not a fundamentalist. In fact, he was not a believer from everything I can, I can read. And I'm not promoting Aristotle, but he did know Greek well. That, that's, that was his language. And he did think about virtues a great deal. So we, and, and this is a little difficult word for us to nail down because it's only used five times in the Bible. And one of the principles of hermeneutics is that you use the Bible to interpret itself. And you see how a word is used and you kind of get an understanding of what God meant. Well, the problem is it's only used five times in the whole New Testament. And three of them are in this chapter. He says that God has called us to his glory and virtue. And that doesn't give us a lot of insight into it. And then he says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So now we've used up three out of the five and we still don't know anything. Uh, we get a little flavor of it in Philippians 4.8 where Paul says, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue, that excellence theme seems to come through a, a bit better. Um, but it, it has an idea of excellence here. And Aristotle... By the way, there was a great deal of, of discussion among the philosophers in the couple of gen the pre-Socratic and the Socratic uh, Socrates, and then Aristotle, and, and later on with Plato, about what made for the excellent man. They really they, they spent a lot of time. If you read the Republic and some of the writings of Plato or some of these things of Aristotle, they're trying to figure out how do we govern ourselves? How do we govern ourselves as a city-state? And, and all of that uh, talk about governing, and try, they had to figure out, well, you can't know what an excellent government is like unless you know what an excellent man is like so that you can govern the man to excellence. So they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what made for an excellent man. <clears throat> and a lot of people had different ideas. Homer had said excellence has to do with uh, the warrior. And, um, and, and he tried to make it a very narrow thing. The uh, sophist came along and said, excellence has to do with anything. You can uh, be an excellent carpenter. It doesn't matter if you're a failure as a dad. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, paraphrasing here. It doesn't matter if you're a fa failure as a dad. If you're an excellent farmer, then you can call yourself excellent. Well, Aristotle put a, a kibosh on all of that, and he said, that is not true. Your arete, your excellence, is tied to your telos. You cannot consider yourself excellent. You cannot consider anything excellent unless it fulfills its purpose. And Aristotle would say, you cannot consider that sword at your side an excellent sword if it will not cut. You can have a beautifully jeweled handle and a shiny blade, but if it doesn't do the one thing swords are designed to do, and that is cut, it is not an excellent sword. You can call it a beautiful sword, you can call it a shiny sword, but you can't call it an excellent sword because it doesn't do the thing swords are supposed to do. He said, you can't consider that boat out in the harbor an excellent boat unless it floats. 
It can have beautiful design and, and the straight mast and, and beautiful sails and well-crafted. But if it doesn't float, you can call it all kinds of other things. But you can, and if it doesn't float, you might be calling it all kinds of things. But you can't call it excellent because it doesn't do the one thing it's supposed to do. Aristotle on that issue had that thing right. So true. what is true excellence then for a believer? Well, Peter tells us that in his previous epistle in uh, 1 Peter 2.9 because he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. And then, and then he says that. And here's the purpose statement. You are all of these things for this reason, this purpose, that ye might show forth the praises. And there he uses the word arete the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what do we learn from this verse? We learn a couple of things. We learn that God has arete. God is excellent. God fulfills all the purposes of a God. He gets an A++ in being God. He is excellent in all his ways. And we're to... And, and what, and, and, and so God has excellence. He says we're to show forth the excellences of him... But he couches all that in this purpose statement for Christians. And he says, you are all of these things that you might show forth the excellencies of the hymn who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here he tells us our purpose is to reflect the excellence. Our excellence is reflecting the excellence of God. Now, you can call yourself a brilliant Christian. You can call yourself a well-dressed Christian. You can call yourself a physically fit Christian. But you can't call yourself an excellent Christian unless you're doing the thing that God designed us to do, and that is to show forth the excellencies of our Father in, our, in, in heaven. The one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when Peter says, add to your faith virtue, he's saying, get this purpose statement right. This is where we have to start. Arete, or true excellence, requires purposing to develop and display the excellencies of Christ. Now, you can call this dedication, you can call it consecration, call it surrender, call it resolve, but you don't get very far down the Christian walk if this isn't in place. By the way, when you're discipling your sons, when you're discipling somebody else, when you're discipling your grandsons, your wife, your daughters... We're constantly calling them to get back to the purpose, are we not, or should we not be, of showing forth the excellencies of Christ. This is why when, our, when we, we send our young people to a Christian camp, what are the, the main two things they're hammering away at there? Our salvation, coming to this saving faith, and then consecration, surrendering your life to God. Why? Because that's the next thing, that's, that's the next critical thing here. And here's a problem we have in much parenting. Here's a problem we have in a lot of Christian education. Here's a problem we have in, in much uh, uh, Christian uh, spiritual instruction in the church. Is that we're trying to add knowledge and self-control and endurance and godliness to young people and adults who have not yet decided to be like Christ in the first place. And because th- this is, I believe, this is the large brain that regulates the development of the rest of the embryo. And if that brain is malfunctioning, there's a lot of dysfunction in the rest of the body in its development. And if this commitment to becoming like Jesus Christ is not first in our lives, gentlemen, all the rest of our Christian life is going to be malformed. 
and this has got to be a key thing that we're, that we're calling our children to and our wife to and ourselves to continually. I, I try, how do you cultivate that? You've got to remind yourself of this every day and sometimes many times through the day. The first thing I do when I wake up this, in the morning, the first thing I did when I woke up this morning is I sit on the edge of the bed and I pray. I say, dear Father, because of what he did in my place at the cross and because of what he has said to me in his word and because of what he will require me at the judgment, I devote all of my life today to living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's trying to get my mind focused again. Why am I awake today? There's only one thing God's doing on the earth and he's trying to do it in me and he wants me to work on that and doing that with other people. And every day I remind myself of that and sometimes several times throughout the day. You've got to cultivate this or you don't get it. But then we're to add to that, he says, knowledge. Once you decide, you know, I really need to be like Jesus Christ, you find out, you you start asking yourself logically, what does that look like? What does that mean? It means cultivating a God-taught understanding of the person, the work, and the ways of Jesus Christ. I've got to know what he's like. I've got to know what he's thinking. And gentlemen, we've got to be really careful in this day and age. We cannot be treating the Bible. We've got a Christian libertinism I'll talk about in just a few minutes too, that permeating our Christian circles that treats the Bible like the tax code. You read it to find all the loopholes so that you can do what you want but still stay out of jail. You can't treat the Bible that way. So, well, God didn't exactly say this, so I'm free to do this. No, you're not. Well, he didn't exactly say this. And, and in fact, the whole idea sometimes is, give me a Bible verse or get off my back, man. That's missing the whole point of this book. This is the mind of God. We want to know how he thinks. I, I'm just amazed at Patty, my wife. She... You know, she will, she will do something, and I'll, I'll say, why did you do that? She said, well, because I, I thought you might like it. I said, how do you know that? Because you like this over here and this over here, and I thought you might like this. Well, I've never said you got to do that, but she's, ta- she's tried to know my mind, know how I think. And we're not only to keep his commandments, do, but do also those things that are what? Pleasing in his sight. How are you going to know what's pleasing in his sight? What is he like? You've got to know the Word, and our children have to know the Word. That means cultivating a God-taught understanding of the person of Christ, who He is and what He's like. And a God-taught understanding of the the work of Christ. What has He done and why? What was this cross all about? And the ways of Christ, what He desires and demands of us. Peter's burden is, he, he closes this epistle, 2 Peter, and he closes it with these words. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a very, there are very practical reasons why we must know Christ, why we must know God in the way that I'm talking about. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite pieces of art. I, I don't own it. It doesn't hang in my house. And, and it won't, won't hang in any of our houses because it's a fresco which means it's a, it's a painting, a watercolor painting in, that was painted in wet plaster. 
in the Vatican in one of the papal libraries. It's called The School of Athens by Raphael, a Renaissance painter, one of the three major Renaissance painters. Um, and this is kind of a funny thing. There's a long history of why this is in, in the Vatican. Um, but it, it, there's nothing religious about this painting at all. Every person that you see on here, um, and the scholars have tried to identify most of the people, and, and they think they know who they are because of the, the symbolism in, in each one of them. But Diogenes, philosopher, is here. Pythagoras, mathematician and philosopher, is here. Uh, Alexander the Great is here. Um, Sophocles is here. Some of the playwright, Greek playwrights are here. But what I want to call your attention to are the two men in the middle in this doorway. Um, and th the one on your left with his finger up is Aristotle. I'm sorry, is Plato. Um, and the one on his, um, on your right <laughs> is, is uh, Aristotle. So the older one is Plato, and Aristotle is his disciple. Plato uh, believed that the real meaning in life and significance in life was found in universals. That's why Raphael has him pointing his finger up. And Plato, his term for that in his writings was, uh, was that the meaning was found in the forms of something. Um, he said, you, 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 you know this is a chair, not because um, somebody told you that is a chair, but it possesses, as Plato would say, this possesses chairness. Just all of us recognize this is a chair. We recognize this is a chair and that this greenery down here is not a chair because this does not possess chairness. Whatever that universal chairnessness is, all of us know what that is. And that's, why, that's how Plato thought. And there, there are some big holes in, in his reasoning there. But he did get some important things right. And, and one of them is that real meaning is found in universals. Well, Aristotle came along and said, no, 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 the real meaning is found in the particulars of life. And you see his hand sweeping down. Aristotle was probably the first real Renaissance man long before there ever was a Renaissance. Um, he was a, a botanist. He uh, dissected cadavers. He, he, he did a lot of the things that Michelangelo uh, did um, later on in, in the Renaissance. Um, because he was interested in the particulars. He's saying life and meaning, the meaning in life is really found in the particulars. We've got to examine everything and find out how things work and what life is all about. Well, um, there's an important, there, there are important principles. And what they discovered, or what Plato discovered, was something that God has built into the universe. And by the common grace of God, he ran into it. There is a temporal world of particulars and there is a, an eternal world of universals. And Paul said, like in 2 Corinthians 4, um, uh, our, our, um, though, we, 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 though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day, while we look not at the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, it's important for us to understand the universal in particular and how they relate to one another. And this is where we need the knowledge of God, adding to our faith a certain kind of knowledge. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, this has to do with the particulars of life, do all to the glory of God. That's the universal. And what God is teaching us all the way through the Scriptures, what, what our children must get, what our grandsons must get, what we must get, 
is that there's, there are universals that govern the particulars. And this is where Christian liberty really goes askew in today's libertine thinking. Because the use of the particular is determined by the universals. For example, Paul would say, that piece of meat eating, uh, sitting in front of me is a particular. And God has not forbidden me to eat that meat. There is no command not to eat the meat. But Paul said, I won't eat that meat while the world stands if certain universals are in play. Even though it's not forbidden by God. This is where this whole idea today that if God hasn't addressed it particularly, then I'm free to do whatever I want. No, we're not. He's given us many universals that we must put into play in order to use a particular in a right fashion. For example, Paul said that meat, he said, even though all things are lawful, what he's, he's not saying everything in the world is lawful, of all the things that are lawful, in other words, God has not forbidden me, there are a lot of things I won't do if it affects the spiritual well-being of others. If it's a stumbling block to my brother, I will not do it even though God has not forbidden it. He said, if it brings any control over my life, I will not be brought into bondage to anything. Even though God hasn't forbidden it, I will not do anything that's a hindrance to the gospel. I will not do anything because of, of its sure uselessness of the activity. He said, there's some things that are lawful for me to do, but are not profitable. Now, gentlemen, think through that with the entertainment mindset today. Paul said, there are a lot of things that are lawful for me I will not do because of the sheer uselessness of that activity. It is unprofitable. Well, God hasn't forbidden me spending all this time on the video games or, you know, a lot of parts of the Internet I haven't seen yet. Um, You know, God hasn't forbidden. No, he hasn't. But is it profitable? Remember, God's on a mission to do one thing, and you and I have to be consuming our lives fulfilling that mission. Now, I'm not saying there, it, I'm not, I don't have anything against leisure as long as it further equips me for the mission. But leisure for the sake of leisure and leisure for the sake of my own self-indulgence is not godly. And Paul said, I, I, I'm regulated by whether or not something has any purpose or not and by the failure of that activity to edify others. So the point I want us to make is that the, the one I want to make to us is that the knowledge of God that we're to be adding to this arete. I want to be like Christ. Well, God says, all right, let me tell you a lot of things. He's going to tell you a lot of particulars, but gentlemen, don't miss the universals, the principles that guide what we do. Otherwise, we end up like Christian libertines, and that's exactly, by the way, part of the group that, Paul, that Peter was writing against in 2 Peter 1. We're libertarians. Who'd come along and said, you know, we're saved by the grace of God, and that means we're free to do all kinds of things. No, we're not. The grace of God, Paul taught us in Titus 2.11 and on through that, teaches us to deny ourselves. It doesn't teach us to indulge ourselves. So when you take that saving faith and that excellence and knowledge and you put it in a blender and mix it up, it comes out tasting a lot like commitment. And I put that at the base of what I call a pillar of core values here. Um, This is the bottom of it. Uh, this is the base of it, the foundation for the Christian walk. So if, if you and I are going to grow our sons and our grandsons, and if we are going to grow, we must have in place this foundation, saving faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore eternal life, and then the knowledge of, and, and then the commitment to becoming like Christ, and the knowledge of his ways. This is why we read our Bible over and over and over and over and over again. 
And I hope you, I hope you don't get tired of going to men's conferences or, or men's retreats, this kind of thing. And, and you might say, well, you know, I've just heard it all before. Well, we don't stop reading our Bible because we heard it all. You know, I've read through the Bible once. You know why? I read through it once. Why read it again? Well, because I need it again. I need it again. Say, well, I, I, I don't need to learn more new things. I'm not doing these things already. Well, you don't stop coming to church because you don't have it all mastered. We don't stop reading our Bible because we don't have it all mastered. We need the repetition. That's part of what the instruction from Peter is to us. You need to be reminded of these things. Um, just summary here. These traits, arete and knowledge, produce a wholehearted disciple. This is a person who's gung-ho for God who chooses the appeals and the ideals of Christ and rejects the appeals and the ideals of the world. And we've got, gentlemen, we've got to see these as polar opposites. You love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. John said that. That's not, that's not some modern-day raving fundamentalist saying that. That is, that is the apostle saying that. And it's true. You can't love the world and love the Father at the same time. You've got to make that arete choice that the most important thing is becoming like Christ. And if that means eliminating the world, that's so be it. I don't need the world. I need Christ. Well, then we come to the second column, which I call the backbone of the Christian life, of christ likeness, the backbone of Christian character. And that is self-control. Follow the divine logic here. Saving faith... And you decide because Christ has saved me, he deserves everything. Pastor Vaughn was telling about a fellow that came to Christ Sunday. And I'll probably get this wrong, Pastor, but, but led this um, Iranian fellow, Iraqi fellow, to the Lord. Oh, yeah, an Iraqi fellow brought a Filipino guy. And the Filipino guy was, he, many things had been happening in his life, and he'd been beaten up and robbed and this kind of thing. And he, and, and, and he survived and thinking, there must be some reason why I'm still alive. And he went to talk with his friend who is a believer and brought him to church where Pastor was preaching. And, and um, when Pastor was giving him the gospel after, after the church, he said, um, uh, and they asked, do you, want, do you want to become a Christian? He said, I want everything he has to offer and he can have everything of me. That's pretty good, isn't it? You know, that's what the Christian life is. You just give him everything of you and you take everything of him and that's what we were designed to be like. That's how we were designed to function. And here's a guy who, who, who's been saved a couple of seconds or been under conviction for a little bit about salvation is going to get saved in a couple of minutes and he knows what it's all about. He can have everything of me and I just need everything of him. That's it. That's arete. He can have, that's a wholehearted disciple. And then you add to that guy knowledge, saving faith and arete and knowledge. And then what happens, you start adding this knowledge about Christ and his ways and you realize that I'm not like that. And there's got to be some self-control coming into my life. Well, that's a fruit of the Spirit, too. You cultivate that. It's cultivating a God-empowered mastery of my internal desires. By the way, the, the, the philosophers, the, the classic philosophers, when they talked about self-control and endurance, the next, phrase, the next word here, they, they almost always talked about those two together as flip sides of the same coin. Self-control was mastery over your internal desires. Endurance was mastery over external pressures. And we'll look at that in a minute. And they talked about them t- together. Peter says, you've got to have this self-control. 
Um, what I want us to see, though, is it's a certain kind of self-control. Let's, let me give you this illustration. Let's, let's say we have is, is a, um, a college student, but his senior year in high school, he um, is trying to decide what college he's going to go to. And he has just blown his academics through his high school years. He's just goofed off. He's got a lot of ability, but he's just not measuring up to any of that. And he's got a teacher in English, and the teacher in English is from Bob Jones, and periodically she talks to students about going to Christian college and plugs BJU. And so one day after class, he comes up to her and he says, guess what, Mrs. Brown? I uh, put in my application at Bob Jones University. And she says, John, are you kidding? She said, I, uh, I'm not sure how you make it there, John. Academically, um, you're just not going to cut the mustard at Bob Jones. In fact, you, I mean, you, I, I've, had to, I've had to goad you for every single assignment you've ever turned in. And I've had to be on your back of all that. In fact, I passed you in senior, I'm passing you in senior English because I do not want to see you in my class again next year. <laughs> but academically, you don't cut the mustard. And he says, I, I know, I know, I've been really, you know, goof off, but I'm going to turn over a new leave when I get to Bob Jones and I'm going to do differently. Then he walks out in the hall and the principal comes down the hall and he says, John, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad to see you here. I, I just, funniest thing happened. I just got a call from Bob Jones University Admissions Department. They want a reference on you from me, your principal. John, I, I can't believe you're doing this. He says, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know, um, uh, but, um, I, you know, I, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And he says, you're going to get expelled down at Bob Jones. I mean, you've spent more time in my office than you have in class this last year. How do you think you're going to make it at Bob Jones? I, I know, I know, I, I really, but I am going to turn over a new leaf. So he gets down to Bob Jones, and he, the first week he gets all of his assignments, and he lays them out at night, and he's getting ready to study. And as he looks at all those assignments and all this reading that he's got to do, and he looks at that, and he says, oh, man, I do not want to do this stuff. I want to go play b- basketball. I want to shoot some hoops. I want to go hang out with the guys. And as I said, there's a lot of the web I haven't seen yet. I want to, you know, I've got some more of that to conquer, and... And um, I'm going to go see what I can do out there. By the way, that is a disastrous place to try to have dominion over the web. And there are a lot of guys that do that. Spend hours and hours and hours just surfing. Well, there is a sense in us of adventure and dominion of trying to conquer, but it's fruitless, useless activity. Anyway, for the most part. Uh, A lot of good use out there, but not the spending hours that a lot of people do just wasting time. And getting into a lot of trouble. Um, but anyway, he sits down and he says, you know, and he's tempted to surf or to go play ball or hang out with his friends or something. And then he says, no, 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 everybody's expecting me to fail. I cannot give in to this. I got to prove to them that I can make it. And so he buckles down and he studies. And he does that every night. And his grades come home and they're up and his parents are happy and, and he's pleased with that and everybody's happy. But folks, God is not impressed. In fact, God is not even honored in what he just did. An unbeliever could do what he just did. An unbeliever at a state school could realize that goofing off equals low grades. This doesn't take rocket scientists to come to that. And that if he's going to get better grades, he's got to study. There's nothing spiritual at all in that mindset. 
But if that same boy comes to that same situation that night with all these books in front of him and he says, you know what, Lord, I'm tempted to go do this and to indulge myself in this way and I know that's not what you want. You've called me here to train and prepare and I've got to use my time and steward my time wisely and God, I need self-control from you. I need you to bear that fruit in my spirit and with your help, I'm going to stay here tonight and I am going to study. And, I, and he does that, folks, every night after night after night after night. Guess what? That man develops the fruit of the spirit in his life. And God's honored with that. Now, both of them get the same kind of grades. Both of them please their parents. But one just develops human virtue. And by the way, God has, in his common grace, made it possible so that any man can improve by just picking a standard and disciplining himself toward that standard. Anybody can improve. Unbeliever can become more honest. He can become more faithful at his work. He can become more loyal at his work. He can become more persevering at his work. Anybody can improve because of the common grace of God. But God's not honored in that. The plowing of the wicked, which is a good thing. The plowing is a good thing. But God says the plowing of the wicked is sin. I'm not impressed because he's doing it without me in the picture. And a student who sits down and buckles down to his, his classes and his studies and gets good grade, but God is not in the picture, is not pleasing God. In fact, he's sinning against God because he's trying to do the right thing apart from God. And all of us can do that, can't we? What we have to add to our faith is, knowledge, is that arete, that excellence, commitment to excellence and knowledge and then self-control. But that self-control must have God in the picture. If God's fruit of self-control is going to be born in us, there's got to be a lot going on between us and God. You and I must be talking to God and depending on God and letting God talk to us or we're doing nothing differently than somebody in the world can do. And God's not honored with that. And, and those of us who teach and those of us who have, who have children and those of us who are discipling, which I hope that means all of us, got to keep this in mind when we're, when we're cultivating these things in our own lives and other people. This has got to be done in dependence upon God, not in our own flesh. But we have to add to that Self-control. And then to self-control, we have to add endurance. Which is cultivating a God-sustained faithfulness under external pressure. Now, would you notice the divine logic here again? If you're going to endure and put up with something over the long haul, and most of us can do all right with the trouble when it first comes along, but it, we have a hard time, don't we, when it gets long and it drags on. Maybe it's a physical affliction. Maybe it's a financial situation. We can, we can do okay when it first hits us, but boy, when it just doesn't change, we start losing our steam, and we need endurance. Well, you can't have endurance unless you have some self-control, because you're going to have to think right and make yourself think right and make yourself depend on God and bow to God. All of that's part of self-control. That has to be in place before you're going to stay in the race. We have to have that self-control. And then to that, add this endurance. Dr. Bob Sr. really stressed this with the students a lot. He passed away before I came to school, just a couple of years before I came to school. But he had all kinds of chapel sayings, and many, many of them dealt with endurance. And by the way, we've really got to, we've really got to help our young people cultivate that. Young people today, and, and because many parents today don't have endurance... People ask me, I've been dean of students 28 years now. 
And people ask me, over 28 years, have you seen a change in the student body? Oh, yeah, I've seen a big change in the student body in two ma major areas. One is the level of corruption. When I, was, when I was coming to college, thinking about college, that's back in the 60s. I know that's a long time ago. The earth had just dried out after the flood. But back in the 60s, you know, my, my pastor would say, don't, you don't want to go to a state college because if you go to a state college, you'll get in all that partying and you'll get corrupted. Many, 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 many young people come to college corrupted. They don't have to go away to college to get corrupted because of the entertainment media and how much that has been a part of their life and the movies and the music and, and the sensuality of our day. And they come very, very corrupted. And so there's a lot of work that's got to be done in their lives before they really can get turned around and stable. And the second thing that has changed significantly in almost 30 years is the level of endurance. Back in the, back in the early 70s, Dr. Bob Jr. now, and, and some third, Dr. Bob Jr. would start preaching don't quit sermons at midterms because we'd get our grades and we'd want to quit. And so when the midterm grades are about ready to come out, he would preach these messages on midterm, midterm grades and don't quit and all that kind of thing. You know when we preach the don't quit sermons now? The week after the assignments come out the first week of school. I'm serious about that. Because the students look at that and say, I don't, I don't want to do that. And they want to quit then. They haven't even studied yet. They just got the assignment sheet. And I'm not saying that to, to, to be contemptuous of any students here. But this is the realm, this is the culture we live in. And you and I, as the elder men in this, have been affected by it too. We want to quit a whole lot quicker than folks used to quit 30 years ago. And we're children of our culture if we're not careful. You cultivate endurance. And Dr. Bob would do that by reminding the young people a lot, finish the job. Don't quit before it's done. Done means four years. You can do anything you ought to do. And gentlemen, that's true for you and me and these, this responsibility taking, this dominion God has given us. We can do anything we ought to do because God will give us his grace for it if we bow to him. Go as far as you can on the right road. The door to the room of success swings on the hinges of opposition. Do not ask God to give you a light burden. Ask him to give you strong shoulders to carry a heavy burden. And the test of your character is what it takes to stop you. And so you and I need to ask ourselves, what does it take to stop us from being honest? That's the test of our character. What does it take, how, how much pressure does it take before we cave in and we tell a lie? That shows how much endurance we really have. In fact, no character of quality is, is any good without endurance. Because if you don't exhibit that character quality under pressure, you don't have it. What does it take to stop us from being pure in our thoughts? That's the test of what we really are. What does it take for us to be critical of somebody behind their back in a contemptuous way? That's, that's the test of our real character. Character qualities are only good if, they have, if we have endurance with them. And so Peter says, add to your faith these things, but be sure you add endurance. And then he says... Add to that endurance godliness. And by the way, you have to have, have self-control and endurance before you can really have full-grown, mature godliness. Why? Because they that are godly will suffer what? Persecution. So you've got to have some endurance because you're going to have a lot of outside pressure. 
And you've got to know how to think right and talk right to yourself and have that self-control or you're going to buckle under, under all that pressure. You can't be godly then if you give in. So you've got to have these things ahead of time in order for, not that we can't do godly things and be developing godliness all along. We're supposed to be working on all of these. But you can't have mature godliness that is able to withstand all of the hardship of intense persecution without these other things in place before it. I, I, th- I think one of the, one of the men who is, is the best illustration of godliness is a 17-year-old shepherd boy, David, before Goliath. In fact, when we talk about godliness here, it is parallel to the Old Testament fear of the Lord. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, that was made before, before Christ, um, oftentimes when the word fear of the Lord came up, they translated it eusebia, which is godliness. The New Testament word for godliness. They, they are parallels. David is facing Goliath in the Valley of Elah. Um, I'm not sure who shot this photo, but they uh, <laughs> were close by when they did that, I guess. Um, maybe they had a telephoto lens. Um, I, several, uh, about three summers ago, my wife and I were able to go to Israel with uh, Craig Hartman on one of his tours. And... Um, we, we stood on a, on a hillside overlooking that valley of Elah. And it was really neat to imagine what would, was going on there in this battle because you could see the brook that was down in the middle of that valley. And, and I could visualize the Philistine army lined out in ranks on the far side. And I could see on this side where we were, the ranks of the, uh, the Israeli army uh, facing those Philistines. And I could see Goliath and, and um, David down in that valley. And a, a thought struck me that I had never thought about up to that instant. I mean, it, it is a courageous thing, is it not, for a 17-year-old shepherd boy with a sling to go out and attack a nine-foot giant wh- who's a trained warrior from his youth and he's got all this armor on. I mean, that alone is a foreboding challenge. But what made it even more challenging to me as I thought about it is that David went out all by himself when everybody else on his side said, we don't do giants. They're way too big. And David said, we have to do giants. They're too blasphemous. That's godliness, folks. That means you take God's side of an issue even if nobody who's supposed to be on God's side does anything. That's godliness. And you've got to have a lot of other stuff under the counter a lot of these other virtues if you're going to get to that point. You've got to have self-control. You've got to have knowledge of God. You've got to have commitment to becoming like Christ. You've got to have knowledge of Christ and His ways. You've got to have self-control. You've got to have endurance. And then you've got to have... And, and what, what godliness is, is just that first column commitment on steroids. It says, I'm even willing to risk myself for this person of Jesus Christ. David will not stand by and do nothing. And a godly man won't stand by and do nothing either. There are lines to be drawn between good and evil, and the godly man draws them. And certainly David did. Boy, that's instructive to us. When you put all of these things together, those qualities, when you put them together, come up as courage for Christ. And these traits produce a brave-hearted disciple. First column, it's a wholehearted disciple. This is a brave-hearted disciple who advances Christ and his ways and opposes evil in himself and in others regardless of the risk to himself. 
And by the way, this is, this is godliness. Remember, this is the epitome of loving God with all of your heart. I am willing to sacrifice myself for this God. And remember, we talked about earlier that at the heart of this godly dominion was this sense of re responsibility taking, even at great risk. If we're not willing to take risk, we do not have courage. In fact, courage is principled action in the face of danger. Principled action in the face of danger. That's what courage is. It's got to be principled action. We have a lot of people doing extreme sports. I may have mentioned this last night. Extreme sports. Extreme. Uh, so there's courage in the face. I mean, there is action in the face of danger. But a lot of it may be sure stupidity. It's not principled action in the face of danger. It's just action in the face of danger. And it's got to be action. It can't just be, well, I've got the right principles. And, and, and isn't, it, isn't it easy to sit on the sidelines and watch something happening saying, that shouldn't be happening. They shouldn't be able to get away with that. Nobody should do that. And, and we, we, we have the, a moral tone about it that that thing is wrong, but we're not going to do anything about it. This is not courage. It's principled action in the face of danger that is courageous. You've got to have your principles right. And you've got to be willing to take action on it in the face of danger to have courage. And David did that. The principles were right. Everybody's saying, you know, this guy's too big. And, and David's saying he's too blasphemous. There's principle at stake here. And it's action. He gets out there with what he knows best and he goes, goes and does it. And it's in the face of great danger and great risk. That's courage. That is the, the, the epitome of loving God with all of my heart. Well, then we're to add to that, coming into the third column, the trademark of Christ's likeness. This is what Jesus said, by all men, sh all men shall know you're my disciples by this, if you have this kind of love one for another. And we have brotherly kindness here, which is cultivating a God-engendered affection for and service to the household of faith. We really need to cultivate this in our assemblies and in our homes. Um, there ought to be a sense when we walk into the church house, when we walk into the building, into the assembly of other believers, that we have been cultivating in our own heart, these are my brothers and sisters. I, I look out here, you are my brothers. And I am your brother. And we, I may be 57 years old, and you may be 18 or 17, but there is more that you have in common with me as a 17-year-old and as a 57-year-old than we have that's different from us. Because we're both sons of the living God. And that's, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. We have more in common than we have that separates us. And our interests may be different and our vocations may be different, but when we walk into this church and we see one another, folks, we have more in common with each other than we have that's different from one another. And you cultivate that. You think about that when you come to church. I sit back there and somebody's sitting in my seat right back there. <laughs> I sit back there for church and I do look around and I think, these are my brothers and my sisters. This pastor is my brother. Pastor Vaughn is my brother. We're brothers in the Lord. 
And gentlemen, God wants us to have that same sort of affection toward one another. Doesn't it, doesn't it just cut the heart out of a family when you hear of this, or maybe you've experienced it when you're own, in your own family, where brothers or sisters don't get along, don't want to be with each other, can't stand each other, and it cuts your heart out. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way in the body either. And you cultivate this. And if you're going to cultivate this with difficult deal, things that you have to deal with one another, you've got to have the first two columns undergirding that. There's got to be some godliness here and some self-control and some endurance. It's like sometimes you might have seen in a bulletin that little poem that says, to dwell above with the Lord we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the folks we know, now that's a different story. Well, it is that way sometimes, but we've got to be cultivating this brotherly kindness. And the thing that destroys that more than anything else, James says, is our tongue. Boy, we've got to watch that. We've got to watch that in our homes. That is the one thing, there are many things, but that is one main thing you keep working on with your children, and that is how they talk to one another, how they talk to mom and dad, and mom and dad, how you talk to one another. We, we, are to be, we are to let no destructive communication proceed out of our mouth. None. Zip. Ephesians 4.28 says, But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And you've got to teach that to your kids. You can't let them cut each other down and trash talk each other or trash talk other people. It destroys unity in the body. It's corruption. And, and, and James says that kind of thinking and speaking is set on fire of hell. And you and, I, you and I have to take the dominion of what's going on in our home and not allow that in our home. It destroys that. And we can't allow that in our assemblies. And then we're to add to that love, which is cultivating a, a God-imitating mindset that scripturally and sacrificially meets the, need, the spiritual needs of others. And, and I, I know sometimes we, we think of agape love as... Um, sacrificially doing good deeds. And, and it is, but again, God's on a mission. Our deeds need to be done for his mission. And if we take food to the homeless or we do something uh, for somebody else, why are we doing that? So we can feel good about ourselves that we don't neglect those kinds of needs? That's not why, we can do, that's not why we're to be doing it. We're to be doing it with a Calvary-minded love that seeks to bring them to the next step of their spiritual life or to, get, or to become saved if they're not. That's why Jesus didn't come down and randomly heal people. Why did he deal, do that? To demonstrate who he was so people would listen to his message because he was here on a mission and it wasn't to heal lepers. It was to die for the sins of men. But he demonstrated who he was by all of those miracles. He was a caring, powerful mess, Messiah. And you and I are to be doing our good deeds for the same reason. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 on that passage about love that if you don't have this Calvary-minded love, you can give your body to be burned and it's worth nothing. You can give all your goods to feed the poor. If you don't have this Calvary-minded love, this mission-minded love behind it, it's worth nothing. And that's why I say here that it is a, it's a mindset that scripturally and sacrificially meets the genuine, meets the spiritual needs of other people. And that to do this under pressure and under fire, and when you don't have anything already, imagine, isn't it, here's, here's, here's Elijah and he, Elisha, 
and he's running out of food and because uh, there's a famine in the land and God has used him to send a famine and famine to for three and a half years under Ahab's rule and God says I, I want you to go up to Zarephath because I've commanded a widow woman up there to sustain you and so he goes up to Zarephath outside of Palestine and he comes to this woman and he says um, um, what are you doing? And she said, I'm gathering sticks and my son and I are going to eat the last, uh, we're going to build a fire and I'm going to make this meal uh, and uh, then we're going to die. And Elijah, Elisha says, well, feed me first. Elijah? Was that Elijah? Um, Elijah says, feed me first. Well, she said, well, you, you know, I, I can't do that, um, you know, because, I mean, these are basic needs of our own and this kind of thing. No, 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 you, you, you sacrifice. And isn't this the way it is in ministry and in our families? God sends people to us to ask something from us and our barrel is already empty. You know, most of us are ministering out of empty barrels or almost empty barrels as it is. And God keeps sending these people and saying, you know, I need something, I need something, I need something. What do you do? You go to God. And you meet those needs so that you have opportunity to do spiritual work in their lives. That's what, that's what agape love is. When you put these together um, in this last column, they come out compassion like Christ, and that's that beautiful capital at the top of a pillar. And this is, this is the, 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 the crowning virtue. These traits produce a tender-hearted disciple-maker who seeks the lost and who by his example and effort disciples others to live a Christ-centered life. Well, gentlemen, in our, in our homes and in our ministry with our sons and our grandsons and other men and, and, and the, the women God has brought into our lives, our daughters and our wives. Um, we are to be making character connections. We're to be looking at what's going on in, in the life from day to day and seeing what do they need? What do I need in this, in this list of virtues? And whatever you need. If you're having a hard time with endurance and staying with what you've been given to do, all you got to do is, this is a great diagnostic tool, all you got to do is back up one and say, well, where am I not talking to myself right? I'm not self-control. I don't have self-control in the right way. If you're having trouble with self-control and you can't keep your eyes off that porn, you've got to back up and look at what kind of knowledge you have of Christ. And, and if you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not spending time in the Bible. I really have no interest in that. Then you need to back up and see if you have any, any commitment to become like Christ in the first place. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, you've got to step back and see if you're even saved. It's a wonderful diagnostic tool. Wherever you're having trouble, back up one or two steps and find out what you need to build in order to have what you need to have that quality that you lack. And use that in that way with your family. It's a great discipleship tool. And Peter said, I'm going to remind you about this over and over and over. And I want even after I'm dead for you to be reminded about this. That's why I'm passionate about it. This is something you and I've got to get. And this becomes the core of godly dominion. The godliness here of the essential virtues of 2 Peter. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.